Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. Welcome to Shameless, the celebrity and pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne journalists Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. I think you legitimately confuse people when you say my name first. Why? It's the polite thing to do. We've come back to this a million times on the podcast. I can't say my name first. You can't write your name first on a birthday card. I can't say my name first here. But we keep meeting people who think our voices are swapped and that my (laughs) voice sounds like your face, which doesn't make any sense. Well, then maybe we should just do more videos on Instagram so people know. Hey, coming up on today's show, Instagram Armageddon or is Instagram finally free? Plus, the Adam Goods documentary that smacked us in our seats. And then... What's the responsibility of brands who endorse influencers who say uneducated things? But first, Michelle, how was your week? It was a good week. I'm really tired again. I feel like I'm saying that. I think it's I actually... Groundhog Day. I think I have seasonal affective disorder. And I'm not saying this just off my own bat. My psychologist says that to me every winter. She's like, yeah. you need to go on a summery holiday. And I promise her every year that I'm going to go on a summery holiday. And I never go on a summery holiday. It's sunny today, though, on the day that we're recording. So I feel like that helps our mood too. Yeah, I just, I hate waking up and then it being dark and cold and miserable. Because then the last the tiniest thing- violin. Oh, fuck you. You pulled that on me last week. Yeah, true. But this is actually a thing. Who wants to get out of bed when it's like six degrees? But who wants to get out of bed for stop? Well, in summer, I bounce out of bed. If it's sunny outside, oh. I'm like, yes, let's start the day. This is jelly beans full of beans always. Um, anything else to report with the week? No, not really. What do I have to recommend to people? We're going to talk about it in a bit, but the Adam Goods documentary, The Final Quarter, is the best thing I consumed all week and it really stuck with me as we'll discuss but that is definitely my recommendation this week if you haven't watched it go on to 10play.com.au do not type in numerical 10 type in letters 10 because otherwise you'll end up on a porn website you're kidding <laughs> yeah did you not know that no, I'm gonna do it now yeah it used to be that way I'm not sure if it's still that way now but yeah just make sure you put in 10play.com.au Unless they bought, unless it's template.com, this will be great content no. for all the listeners. Michelle, this is coming up as Channel 10. Okay, maybe Channel 10 bought it out. <laughs> but I made the mistake last year of putting in numerical 10 
And yeah, porn website. Mistake or win? <laughs> I mean, a win. Silver no. li- I think we call those silver linings. <laughs> no, no. My grandmother who listens and Sorry, pulled me Christine. up the other week. Nanny literally said to me, she's like, is Mitch comfortable with all the things you share on the podcast? Because you made a little uh, jab about our sex life, apparently. I, I don't remember you making it, but in one episode you did. I didn't make a jab. We were just talking about Black Mirror and you were talking about <laughs> how it made you think about sex and stuff. And then I started to freak out. Mitch doesn't even listen. So thank God. Otherwise he'd hear. I could say whatever. Yeah, you really, really could. How was your week? <laughs> my week was really good. I had a good week. I think it's because it was my birthday on the weekend. Happy birthday. Thank you. And I know that you're meant to pull the whole, oh, I'm so not into birthdays. I don't like birthdays. I love birthdays. <laughs> Nobody says this out loud. I fucking love birthdays. And it's not because I like being the center of attention. In fact, I get quite red and embarrassed if I am the center of attention. Like I do get like a stress rash. The girl with the podcast doesn't like being the center of attention. (laughs) So true. I just sound like the world's biggest hypocrite. Just tune out, ignore everything I say. But the reason that I like birthdays is I feel like I spend half my life forcing people to hang out with me, like trying to round people up on the weekend, trying to round people up midweek. You are like an annoying Labrador, yes. Forcing people to come. Mm. And on your birthday, people can't bail. Like it's the one time that people can't bail. They have to turn up. It's 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 an interesting line of thought. I had a lot of fun with you. I'm nursing a hangover today. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Did you enjoy my birthday present? Yeah, I loved your birthday present. It, was- it wasn't just me. It was me with a couple of other girls. But I was, I'm always worried when it comes to buying for you because you're far more fashionable and stylish than I am. No, I'm not. So whenever it comes to buying things for you, because often like if we're looking on the same shop website or whatever, you'll point out something that didn't even penetrate my radar. Like you'll point to a dress where I didn't even see it. And then I look at it I'm like, fuck, how does my brain not see the obviously stylish things that Zara sees and then buys and looks amazing and then gets a million comments from all the listeners about what Zara's wearing, not what Michelle's wearing. So there's clearly no hang-ups here. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm so it's fine. It's not even true in the slightest. Also, you're pretty good at picking what I like. I think you have a pretty good radar of what I like. I think it took a good two years of knowing you. And it's I'm true. slowly getting a there. lot of time together. I would recommend uh, a piece that was going pretty wild in the Facebook group from the Huffington Post on conversational narcissism, oh, which was started some really interesting conversations this week. It's not a new piece. It was from 2018, I think, right? Yeah, and it plunged me into an existential crisis. It did. It plunged a lot of people into an existential crisis. It was all about how we respond to people when they're talking about the depths of their sadness, whether it be grief or anger or something like that. And the piece started with the um, writer Celeste Headley talking about how one of her friends lost her dad a couple of years ago. And when she went to have a conversation with her friend about this grief, she started telling a story about growing up without a dad. And she realized midway through that conversation based on her friend's response that it was absolutely the wrong thing to do. And it's how we often approach conversations that we find quite difficult that we kind of, because we're so uncomfortable in those moments, we always just talk about ourselves and we kind of bring our own experiences to it. And we've had a few conversations since we both read that piece, thinking of past examples that we might have done that and examples where it might be wrong or it might be right. And examples in real time, because I catch myself doing it in every conversation I have now. Oh, I said to you something and you're like, I can't respond to this because I'm about to do that thing, that conversational narcissism thing that I hate now. Yeah. So what got me about the article wasn't the example, it wasn't actually the example of grief and that one conversation. That's an extreme example. The one 
ones that got me were the casual everyday examples of conversational narcissism where I was like, I say that all the time. So for example, if Zara and I walked into a workplace together and Zara said, I'm feeling really tired today, a conversational narcissist would respond, yeah, me too, and then proceed to explain why they're tired. Someone who is good at conversations and generally a better human being would go, why are you feeling tired, regardless think- of their own experiences <laughs> and feelings? <laughs> I've ever done that in my life. You are the why? best at it. No, I don't think I, all I was thinking of is I don't think I would ask someone why they were tired. I would say, mm, yeah, me too. <laughs> I think, but the, the comment thread on the Facebook group was everybody ha- having a real like stress attack about the fact that they do this, which means we all do. But there are some examples where I think it's helpful. I was saying to you, I've had conversations with friends in the last few weeks about breakups and I keep thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I keep talking to them about their breakup and sort of bringing up past experiences of my own. Mm. And then I'm like, at what point does it go beyond conversational narcissism into helpful territory where you use anecdotal examples to sort of inflate a point? I guess it's when you hijack the conversation to like, it began about your friend, but by the end of the conversation, it's all about you. Yeah. And as hard as it is to admit, I do think I'm guilty of that sometimes. And I really want to get better at it. But it's just, I, I don't even know if I necessarily agree with that, but we are obviously our own harshest critics. So it's interesting, but that is a great piece. We'll put that in the show notes if you want to read that and have an existential crisis too. Join me, yeah. (laughs) Speaking of existential crises, there were a few on Instagram this week, Michelle. Yeah, because Instagram has officially launched its trial in Australia where it is removing likes from photos. Well, it's removing the ability to publicly see how many other people like the posts that are in your feed. Correct. And we did touch on this when it was sort of floated as an idea a couple of months ago and we weren't a huge fan of it and we weren't going to touch on it again until it sort of came into play and we both realised how much we didn't like it and how much stronger our opinions were because you, of that. Do you realise as well that we are in the smallest minority? Yeah. Reading that Facebook group and the threads about Instagram removing likes shows me that probably 90% of our listeners think it's a good move and totally. we are not in that camp. We're not at all, which is really interesting. Not surprising. I can see if people People genuinely want a platform when they don't see likes and they say that as a good thing. I mean, I'm not going to be completely dismissive of that. That said, I have my own issues with the way that the conversation is being framed. I'm the same. I think it's good that people feel freer and that's what they're saying. And I do like that people feel like they can post whatever they want without fear of comparison. That's really good. I mean, for young women and girls, it's great that photos are very particular body types won't be adored and championed as the ideal anymore however even though as I'm saying that and I'm saying that removing likes is great for body positivity doesn't that just then get morphed into comments and comments is still with a number next when you can still scroll through and see all the comments and the likes against the comments so doesn't that just get transformed into another form of metrics well that's what's confusing me in that they're not getting rid of metrics on the platform altogether which means I think it's going to be hard for us to not compare regardless like we'll just find different measures to compare like the follower well, that's what gets me I wonder where our sense of critical thinking went when it comes to things like this and I think it's it's Instagram always Instagram ripping us of the ability to think critically about things because everything is, you know, quite surfacey. But I just, I wonder why we're blindly assuming this is a public service. Like it might not be all bad. Like I'm not going to come in here and be like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to Instagram. But this is a huge billion dollar company. There has to be some aid to their bottom line to do it or else they absolutely wouldn't bother. Yeah, well, Instagram is owned by Facebook and Facebook is the company that literally harvested the personal data from millions of their own users' profiles to then 
then used for political advertising purposes against those people's consent. So this isn't exactly a company that would particularly care about our well-being over their profit margins and how much money they're making and what they can do with advertisers. This is one of the biggest companies in the world. It's not a charity. And I feel like lots of people are speaking about Instagram as if it's this altruistic, caring company. And I just don't think that's the case whatsoever. Not at all. And I think the smartest thing that I read this week that I sent to you straight away, because we've had a lot of frustrations with how the conversation has gone about with this, was from former MasterChef winner, actually, Adam Liao. <laughs> but he is a former lawyer, I'm pretty sure. And he is clever. Like, Very smart. If I'm going to recommend following anyone on Twitter, if you spend any time on Twitter, I would absolutely recommend following him. Like every single thing he writes, genuinely, I would want to retweet. And he made three really good points in a pretty lengthy thread about this that I want to read out. The first point that he made, and they were all around how we shouldn't see this as a blindly good thing. And he wrote, people want to interact with the people they follow on Instagram. If they can't see their like appear, it's as if they don't matter. And they'll be more inclined to comment, which creates a richer data set for Facebook to exploit. So that was that point you said before, we're still going to be like measuring things. There's still going to be metrics. It's just going to be different. And we are going to be more inclined to comment. One of the other things that he said that I found really interesting is that the stated reason of wanting to avoid people obsessing over likes doesn't really hold water. People don't obsess over other people's likes. They obsess over their own and you can still see your own likes online or just click through to them in one click on mobile. Mm. That's a really interesting point in that I don't think I've ever looked at how many likes somebody else has. Totally. And won't it just be then comments? Like my friends getting more comments than I am. My friends have more followers than I am. One thing that really annoys me about this as a journalist and as someone who has covered this in the past is how are we going to tell who's buying followers anymore? The metrics we use to figure out who is committing Instagram fraud, for lack of a better term, is that their video views and their likes and their comments weren't matching up with their follower count. We have no way to determine anymore who is buying followers and who isn't, which means that people can inflate their follower count and it just increases this idea that we're living in a false alternate reality again. And it's still a metric that we're measuring each other by and comparing each other by. The last point that he made, which I found really interesting, and I think the one that stuck with us the most, is that he said, I think this move is Facebook trying to de-influence influencers. They're seeing millions slash billions of dollars of advertising dollars that they want funneled into pay promotion going direct to users outside their ecosystem. So a lot of influencers on this platform are earning a bunch of money through Instagram with Instagram not seeing a cent of it to themselves. This may force a lot of advertisers, brands to say, I'm just going to throw money behind a paid ad on Instagram now because it's too hard to pay money to influencers because we can't see like counts, engagement's going to be lower um, and people aren't going to engage as much. Yeah. So to give an example, because I think it can kind of be difficult to imagine what this will look like on a tangible level when it actually is enacted. I think Instead of Cadbury, for example, going to an influencer and saying, can you hold this box of favourites chocolates? Cadbury will then take a video of a favourites chocolate box and put that ad on your feed as a like appeared sponsored post. That's the difference. So it's not for Instagram to make us all feel better about ourselves and wonderful and encourage mental health. It's for Instagram to make more money off us and get us to comment on things and therefore give them more data. I agree with that. And people might come at us and say that we are still being overly cynical and overly skeptical about it. And there are good things. It's not to say there aren't good things about this. It's just to say 
not everything is all good or all bad and there's far more detail and nuance to this than perhaps a lot of people are giving it credit for. And we should be cynical about this company. This um, company it, has well, exactly. treated us in a way where we we should. It is good for us to be cynical about what they're doing with totally. our information and what they're doing with our likes and follows and comments. The thing that's getting me is I'm seeing a lot of commentary around how this is going to be better for our mental health. The goodbye likes, hello mental health was a meme I saw, you know, floated around a bunch over the weekend. How do you feel about that? I think it is good for young women's mental health and young men. I feel like if you're under the age of 18, I actually am all for this. I'm all for Instagram removing likes and follow counts and all of that stuff for underaged people. I feel like it's very reductive to think that taking away like counts on a social media app will mean that we all have better mental health. Mental health and mental illness are so layered and complicated and deeper than that. This is an illness. To say that removing likes from one platform that we all spend time on every single day is going to change your physiological symptoms and what's causing your mental illness is incredibly reductive and incredibly simplistic and incredibly misguided. Well, I think it is completely misguided. And I think what frustrated me was the oversimplistic conversation that sort of saturated that. I I don't want to be a drainer about this completely, though we kind of are a little bit, but whatever. <laughs> but I do think that after being on the platform full time for like seven, nearly eight years, it's our habits and our perceptions are deep seated. And I think it's we're too far gone now for our perceptions of the platform to change because of this. Like I do feel it's too ingrained. I think it's going to take a lot more than this for our perceptions of Instagram to change and our feelings around what we see on Instagram to change. I don't think this is going to change our habits. The other thing that I did want to touch on very quickly before we move on is that if this was coming from a very altruistic point of view from Instagram, if they really did care about our perceptions of ourselves, if they did care about a culture of comparison, then why wouldn't this extend to Facebook too? I know we spend less time on there, but Facebook owns Facebook, obviously. Facebook owns Instagram. Why wouldn't this be a widespread pursuit to counter the culture of comparison? One final point I want to make as well is I wonder if this might be the death of the fashion influencer. Simply because I know in my own habits, when I'm scrolling through, I often look for what photos of fashion influencers and what outfits get the most likes because it's the most popular, right? If we can't see that anymore and if other people can't see what is deemed a cool outfit or cool pair of shoes or cool accessory, people probably aren't going to go and buy it. I think when it comes to fashion, we all want to wear what everyone else thinks is cool and what everyone else thinks is on trend. So I do wonder if this means the decline of fashion influencing on Instagram. I think it will because we're sheep when it comes to fashion. I don't know we'd all be sitting there hoping that we aren't, but we are massive shape. There's huge group think around fashion and trends. So I think you're right too. I think it'll be really interesting to see how the fashion industry and fashion influencing responds to this. Catch me outside. Catch how, me about outside. That? how about that? Catch me outside. How about that? How about that? Catch me outside. How about that? How about that? Catch me outside. How about that? How about that? And now it's time for the quick and dirty. Every week we give you the top five stories from the rough and tumble of the celebrity news cycle. (laughs) I wish you could see Michelle's head flick if she did that. (laughs) Although I'm sure you could almost hear them. Sarah McDonald, it's your turn this week. Hey, my first story. (laughs) Hey. Hi. Number one, meet the millennials pretending to be baby boomers on Facebook. That is from The Guardian. You messaged me during the week. 
in like a stream of little blue and gray bubbles to let me know that you are part of a baby boomer Facebook group and you're obsessed. So my friend Emily just added to me to this baby boomer, like literally out of nowhere, no context, no message, just added me to this Facebook group saying a group where we pretend to be baby boomers. And I sat there for like 15 minutes scrolling through that Facebook group by myself laughing out loud. And it had been a very long time and <laughs> since I had sat in my room and just laughed out loud by myself. It was really nice. And basically what the group is, is just a bunch of millennials taking the piss out of how baby boomers uh, act on Facebook. And since then, like I added you to the group and you were laughing too, but we have had a bit of to and fro about whether it's completely ageist, <laughs> whether it's really fucking harsh and whether it shows just like a complete arrogance of millennials or it can just be seen as a joke. I think it's all of those Yeah, things. I do too. I think it's really funny. I would love to know, for example, my nan or like my mom or whatever, if I added them to the group, what they would think about it and what their take would be. It's funny. It's also ageist though. Uh, my favorite one is when people do dot, 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 but instead of doing dot, 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 do comma, 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 because I feel like that is such a baby boomer thing. And I've, I've never known why I have asked myself so many times, be like, the dot is right next to it. That's the one. Why are we all doing comma, 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 comma? And just like random caps everywhere, yeah. like random caps. It is very funny. And I think my baseline response to this will be, it's just a funny joke, whatever. Like we always come back to, generations will always sort of have some kind of argy-bargy with the, each other. I can't believe I just said argy-bargy. That's what like when I you say? said like, the cream comes to the top. <laughs> it's actually the cream rises to the top. If you're, gonna, if you're going to quote me back to me, at least do it right. I'm not 70 years old, sorry. I don't I know. just used argy-bargy, so I think that I might be. <laughs> I do think, though, this can be seen as a little bit patronising. A little it's bit. It's like when you say to old people they're cute. Yeah, it's exactly It's very that. much that. It's not just calling them cute, though. It's calling them cute and stupid. <laughs> Which is even better. <laughs> What's uh, the second story? Number two, XOXO, Gossip Girl is coming back. That is from Vogue. And without the two main characters, Blair and Serena. Without any of them. Oh. Oh, someone didn't read the story, just read a headline. I like Gossip Girl, but I never had the drive to finish it. Like, I like really? it. Really? I don't love it. You're kidding. No. I, I found out who Gossip Girl was and I was like, that makes no sense. Oh, no, that doesn't make any sense. That was the biggest downfall of any television series I've ever seen. But Gossip Girl, I could go work and rewatch. Speaking of, I realized this week, I've never seen The Lion King. What? I what? know. I've been to the musical. I've been to the musical, but I I've never seen the, the Lion movie. King last night. I've never seen the film. I literally watched it last night with Mitch. I think that people are quite bandwagony about the Lion King. I think there's massive groupthink around the Lion King. Michelle's not talking to me. I don't think people actually love the storyline for itself. They just like saying that they do. Oh my god! I don't know how I got here from Gossip Girl. I'm not going to. Res- I'm not even going to dignify do that. Do you disagree with, an- with that? How? dare you i don't even know what the storyline is i know that scar is bad and simba is good but that's literally it you haven't even watched it how dare you come for the lion king i didn't come for it i came for the people that celebrated literally watch it because i watched it last night and i had the best time singing along to the songs and i was kind of blown away that the graphics were not that bad for something that was made when i was born it was pretty good I've been called Zazu since that movie, so I have some deep connection to the film. How my mind is blown. What, I, I was actually quite blown too because I was driving to your house. I can't believe I didn't tell you when I got out of the car. And a news story came on about the premiere. The remake, yes. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, I actually don't know the storyline. Like, I don't know the storyline of The Lion King and I've never realised that I don't know the storyline. What the hell are Trish and David McDonald doing? I played outside as a child. Oh, my God. Are you, <laughs> I was just an active kid. That's actually – you that need to joke. watch it today before no, the I next just, episode. I have no desire. Wow. Number – oh, that was – number two was about Gossip Girl. Anyway, about Gossip Girl, going back, <laughs> I don't know how we got there. <laughs> that was a 
tangent that actually had no link to each other. It just I came out of nowhere. That I was a thought bubble. I looked down at the headlines that we've written out. I'm like, wait, where's the Lion King one? <laughs> Okay, we were talking about remakes, though, in fairness. This Gossip Girl is written by the guy that wrote the initial Gossip Girl, but none of the characters are the same. It's eight years after Gossip Girl was found out to be Dan. So is there going to be a new Gossip Girl? Yeah, new Gossip Girl, new characters. So I'm actually, I will get behind this because I don't want to remake of something that I liked. Mm. I like that it's a new storyline entirely in a setting that I already know that I enjoy. Kind of reminds me, though, of when they did that remake of Sex and the City or like the prequel. I haven't seen that. It was something where it was kind of like Carrie when she was younger before she became Carrie, oh, the columnist. Yeah, yeah, no. Wasn't that a book as well? It wasn't very good. The Carrie Diaries. The Carrie Diaries. Yeah, there you go. Just not very good. Hopefully this one is good. I'm not going to hold my breath, but who nah, knows? I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Number three. Okay, this is clearly not my story because I don't <laughs> even know what it means. Ovi is here to prove men should always hold friends accountable for shitty behavior towards women. That's from Pretty 52. Let me guess. This is the guy from Love Island that people keep posting photos about in our group and saying that he's like the hero we don't deserve. Yes. I won't. I won't talk about it for too long because I know not everyone watches Love Island UK because not everyone is as clever and intelligent and so true on trend as so I true. am and the Love Island people are. We're like a little cult and I love it. With all too much time on your hands. All I want to tell uh-huh. you, all I want to tell you. Oh, <laughs> she's, she's completely ignoring that point. <laughs> You're lucky that I'm not sitting here in silence after the Lion King thing. Yeah, oh, whatever. Anyway, Ovi, <laughs> you'll like this. I'll of explain. Course, of course. Okay, so he's come into the house quite late, like in the last third of the show Aww. airing. He is a six foot seven pro basketballer, right? Hot. He is covered in tattoos. He has piercings. He is like, he's got a presence about him, but his personality is so soft and beautiful and just amazing that you look at him, you're like, you're the most attractive human being I've ever seen in my entire life. And you're a feminist. He is like, what's he doing on Love Island? Uh, there, oh, okay, that shows me oh. watch Love Island. <laughs> I'm kidding. There are so many good people on Love Island. Anyway, he has cried when his friend left, like was uncontrollably sobbing into his own hands when his friend got eliminated from the show. Stop trying to wrap me up, Zara McDonald. This I is going to be something gave we talk her the wrap-up fingers. This is going to be something we talk about. He also, when he saw his friend Amber was being spoken to in a disrespectful way by Michael, a guy that she was dating but isn't anymore, he pulled Michael aside without going to Amber, without discussing it with her, pulled Michael aside and said, that was disrespectful the way you spoke to her. The tone you used with her is not a tone that you would ever use with me and you should go apologize for that. And he was the only one in the villa who could make Michael realize that he was being really derogatory and sexist towards Amber. Does it feel performative in any way? Absolutely not. This guy is like a British national treasure now. That's how much his behavior on the show has been beautiful. And he does things like he just gets up and like dances in the morning and he'll like sing to himself while he makes himself eggs and toast for breakfast. He's just a really good guy. I want to get like a compilation of Ovi moments and play it for you because you'd fall in love with him. I'm sure there'd be one. And I kind of love him already. Hey, number four, Scarlett Johansson defends her desire to play any person, any race or any tree (laughs) she wants. That is from Vox. I read so many good memes about this. Someone tweeted and it went viral. They were like, I can't go out of my house anymore without worrying that any of the trees that I pass (laughs) are actually Scarlett Johansson. (laughs) What did you think of 
about um, this. Hmm. Because Interesting. So Scarlett Johansson did an interview where she did say, because she has been criticised in the past for playing a Japanese a, woman, a, a Japanese woman, um, a transgender person. Who else? There's been a few examples where a lot of people have come out saying, you probably don't need to play that part. Like, why don't you give it to the person that's never going to get a part playing anything else? Because Who is Japanese? That's exactly right. Who because is trans? the industry is completely skewed. And so she gave an interview where she is quoted as saying that she should be able to play any person, any race or any tree she wants. And, and any animal was another one, I think. And she did, talked a lot about how political correctness and art sometimes shouldn't overlap. Mm. And that interview kind of went bananas, as you can imagine, because the quotes are fucking ridiculous. But she then came out after that and was saying that her quotes were chopped and changed and taken out of context. I think... I was in a couple of minds when I saw her response. And then I came full circle and started to think Scarlett Johansson has been in the industry for decades. Mm -hmm. She's done so many interviews in her time. She would have known that this is an incredibly contentious issue. If she really had an opinion that was different to this, she would have made sure it was known. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, she's media trained to a T. This is what she thinks. I don't. Yeah. These, these words came out of her mouth. I don't think she can then turn around and say, no, no, you guys misunderstood me. I think that for people that don't work in the industry, it is incredibly rare and an incredibly unlikely for a journalist to chop quotes. It's completely unethical. And that's not to say it's illegal or you can't do it but it's just so not the done thing to do like you cannot change somebody's words or else nobody will be interviewed by you ever again as well the like bizarre nature of these quotes i'd be stunned if these were fictitious for someone to come up with any tree i don't yeah. think that would be plucked out of a journalist's brain that came out of scarlett johansson's mouth whether the, the quotes are right or not i think the sentiment is scarlett johansson's sentiment which is that political correctness and art shouldn't overlap and i think that she's deeply annoyed by some of the conversations that have gone on around the characters that she's been played well maybe she should think about how deeply annoying it is to be a trans person or be a japanese person and see someone who is white and cisgender play your role when you don't get representation as it is but um do you think that Ooh. was a good soundtrack? A soundtrack? I mean, Do you think that was a good uh, little sound effect? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I really could just sub a real one in, but I'm going to keep mine. I can't get over the Lion King thing. It's still Number five. <laughs> I'm just going to talk over oh. you so that you forget. Is FaceApp an evil plot by the Russians to steal your data? Not quite. That is from The Guardian again. I really love this story from Awal Madawi. I love a lot of her stuff. Um, FaceApp. Did you use it? Yes. You didn't find it very funny. You sent it to me on Monday where you had just edited my face in a photo of the two of us. And I I didn't really get on board with this trend because, I don't know, it just felt you, like... You thought it was juvenile. It just felt like the 10-year challenge where I was like, cool, another face filter. It was like, you know, the only one I've really gotten behind was the filter making women's faces look like men's faces on yeah, Snapchat. That, was, that was good. Remember when you called me a snob with regards to like my attitudes towards YouTube? And Love Island and everything no, else. No, yes. I, I really want to get into Love Island. Like, there's no way I'm a snob towards it. I want to get into it. Okay. It's just I'm too far gone. Anywho, you were a face app snob. You were like, oh, my God, people have such immature, like, <laughs> senses of humor around this. I mean, I'm cacking myself, like, did, doing everyone that I know. I did come around to it. I appreciated the thread in the group. One of the listeners did edit our own faces to look very <laughs> old and wrinkly and gray. I know. It's confronting. Because yeah. I've always had the assumption that we'll never age. 
Yeah, which I is think, so stupid and obviously incredibly egotistical. Of course we'll age. I'd like to think that we won't age like that, though, because I wasn't a huge fan of how I looked in those photos, but that's fine. I will age gracefully. Will you? Maybe. With a couple of needles in your face. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'll I'll just use lots of moisturizers and serums. Anyway, so after that face app thing went viral, there was a heap of news that went around about how the Russians are basically stealing our data. Which sounds so racist to me that everyone is it's, throwing out It's so the racist. The yeah. reason that people got scared was not because our data was stolen. Our data is stolen like every single day. It was because the Russians were taking it. And you know what? It was like really clever, intelligent New York Times journalists that were using the Russians as a reason for everyone to really freak out as well, which is bizarre to me that this casual racism towards Russian people is just accepted. Like if someone came out and said, the Chinese are stealing your data, everyone would be like, that's a bit fucked up. We probably shouldn't say it like that. But for some reason, this anxiety about Russia and Russian interference and the Russian government has bled down into every person from that country somehow. So what did Awa write? So Awa had this great quote and I really, really love it. So I'll just read it from her piece. We all know what those Russians are like, don't we? They want to harvest your data for nefarious purposes. Unlike American techies, of course, we are always deeply respectful when it comes to personal data and only use your private information to make the world a better, more connected place. And we come full circle. Literally, that's the entire point. The American tech companies aren't using our data. They're not charities. The way we speak about Russian tech companies is pretty embarrassing, to be honest. I'm really surprised about the casual racism that we use towards Russian people at the moment. Agreed. Hey, that's all I've got for you. Thanks so much. (laughs) Still fucking annoyed. (laughs) Oh, my God. Don't yell. No yelling. It was the documentary that had been bubbling and creating conversation for years. On Thursday night, the last quarter aired on Channel 10, a documentary about the final years of former AFL player Adam Goods' career, where he was consistently booed, bullied and targeted by the Australian media and supporters alike. It sparked mammoth conversations about racism, about our failure as a country to call it out, and how our intolerance may well have forced one of the greatest people to have ever played the game out of it. Zara... How did you feel while you watched this? Um, I think this was one of the most powerful things I've watched in a really, really, really long time. I don't cry when I watch things. I cry in my real life, but I don't oh, yeah, really, all the time. I don't really cry when I watch TV or movies or read books, but I, I did cry when I watched this. I think it's because there was no embellishment with it. Like there was no extra real-time commentary. It was just archival footage that told a story, a real story. And because of that, it kind of smacks you on impact. You can't argue with any of it. It's kind of that rawness that hits really hard. I really agree with that. There was such a unique beauty in it just being the events and the events alone. There was no tell-all interview. There was no monologue or narration. It was just the events as they unfolded from both sides and it painted such a clear picture about Australia and a really ugly, hideous one. Well, the overwhelming feeling that I walked away from was that as Australians, we have no idea still what racism actually looks like and for all we speak about racism we actually have no idea how to identify it or how to call it out or even how to rectify it in real time Mm. like we don't know what it looks like and we are so hesitant to call it out I was quite embarrassed actually when we were speaking about this late last week it was before the documentary had actually come out it was actually on Thursday and we were driving to a dinner and you said to me you said I remember at the time I had such flammable conversations with people about it because I felt so passionately about it and I felt like he was being wrong 
wronged and I didn't know what to do and I was angry when my friends disagreed and all of that. And I sat there and I felt really guilty because as much as I love the AFL and as much as I like to think that I'm socially and politically conscious and aware, for some reason this story did not penetrate my radar at the time. And I mean, I can toss around ideas in that I was in Europe for one of the years for basically the entire AFL season and that was 2014 when it was the most inflamed. And yet still, even when I was back in the country in 2015 and when he retired, I didn't really dive into this story. And looking back four years later, I wonder if that's because it was too confronting for me. And if I did dive in, I would have to acknowledge that a sport and a code that I love is so racist and it is so accepted to speak about people in such a damaging way. It's funny because I actually feel similar about me. I look back at that time and although I told you I had some pretty flammable conversations with people about it, after that, because this did go on for years, I think I blocked it out because I didn't know what to do with it. Like it was too complicated and too hard. And that's a pretty confronting thing to recognize about yourself in that the end of the story where he basically retired because of this was something that wasn't on my radar at all. And that's the probably for me the saddest part about this story is that this man, one of the best players to have ever played AFL, basically retired because we kicked him out of the game because we were too racist. Yeah, I cried as well when I watched it. I was so upset, especially after I finished. I actually didn't cry while it was happening. It was when the credits started rolling and I was thinking about it afterwards. I was walking around the kitchen and I burst into tears and I said to Mitch, I'm like, I just feel hopeless. Like I feel so upset this happened and nobody cared or the people that did care weren't listened to and they were outnumbered by the people who were willing to sit by and let this racism fester. And I can't help but think if I feel this sad and angry, how do Indigenous Australians feel every fucking day? If I feel this sad and angry watching a documentary about what happened to Adam Goods, how did Adam Goods feel for this to be happening to him? For him to walk out in his place of work, which was a football field, and every time he did his job, every time he touched the ball, every time he kicked a goal, the overwhelming sound that engulfed him was booing. Yeah, it makes you actually feel sick. Like it genuinely makes you feel sick. And I don't want to mince my words today because I think if there's one thing that I learned from, I mean, I learned a bunch of things from this documentary, but if there was one key thing I learned from it, it's that too many people mince their words, beat around the bush, push to be too diplomatic rather than decisive. And we were all worse off because of it. I know um, AFL CEO Gillian McLaughlin came out six months after this all happened, maybe six months after Adam Goods retired and said, I should have come out and called it racist when it was. But we have this issue where we don't want to call anyone racist. We don't want to call anything racism because it feels too harsh. Yeah. The thing that gets me, and if people don't watch AFL, then I'll give you a bit of explanation as well. There was a really strong thread in the camp that said it wasn't racist. Those people said that the booing was because people didn't like his on-field actions, particularly when he was staging, and I'll put that in inverted commas, staging for free kicks. And apparently to the people who said none of this was racist, that was the reason everyone was booing. Everyone hates that Adam Goods was apparently staging. I pick a bone with that because so many players, including Joel Selwood, one of the most celebrated players in the game, is known for staging. He's copped so much criticism in the media for it. Everyone makes memes about it, jokes about it online. Every time Joel Selwood touches the ball or stages at a game, he does not get booed. Absolutely doesn't. There are so many other players. Alex Rance is another one for Richmond who is known for staging. And I love Alex Rance. So if he's listening, (laughs) you're my one true love. If Alex Rance is listening. Well, there was a great um, snippet from the Mungrook footy show about this where they were like, people are saying that he's staging for free kicks, but he was 168th on the list of people who got the most free kicks in the league that year, which is just a crazy stat and makes absolutely no sense. 
One thing I did want to chat about is the media's responsibility here, like the leading and loaded questions that happened in press conferences with Adam Goods after certain things might have happened, whether it be he had been booed, whether he called people out for racism, whether he did that war cry, felt deliberately cantankerous and deliberately flammable. Journalists asking him, why do you think you're so divisive? And I felt like they were trying to start a fire and they knew it. They were trying to get the headlines and in doing so, they genuinely encouraged one of the most racist discussions we've had in recent years in our country. Mm. And the way he maintained his composure throughout it all just stood out to me. I could not believe that this man was up against it again and again and again every game, every year for probably three years by the end of it. And he never lost his temper. And if he had lost his temper, everyone would have labelled him the angry black man. So he obviously had taken on this idea that he needed to be composed, he needed to beat this with intelligence at all costs. The fact that he behaved the way he did, he spoke the way he did, he dealt with every circumstance the way he did, and we still painted him as a pain and a nuisance and an annoyance is so telling to me because we tried to do that at every turn when none of his actions lined up with that. There was another question in a a press conference where you can literally see him swallow his breath And somebody said to him, are you trying to create a controversy? And all he had done in an Indigenous round was do an Indigenous war cry after he kicked a goal. And I feel like this question at this press conference kind of wraps it in one because we kind of created this sense that he was bringing it on himself, that he was, as Sam Newman called him, like a deliberate provocateur, that he, because he refused to get in his box, because we wanted to put him in a box, because we want to put minorities in boxes and shut up, we thought he must be reveling in the drama. Well, we want Indigenous players, and when I say we, I obviously mean the racist side of Australia. We want Indigenous players because they're good at footy and they're athletic, but we don't want them to open their mouths. And as soon as they open their mouths and say anything that challenges us, we want them to shut up and just play footy. There was a fabulous quote in the documentary from Waleed Ali. That was great. I wrote that down too. I actually want to explore Waleed Ali a bit with you as well. I'll, I'll include this quote first. There's no mystery about this at all, and it's not as simple as it being about race. It's about something else. It's about the fact that Australia is generally a very tolerant society until its minorities demonstrate that they don't know their place. And at that moment, the minute a minority, someone in a minority position acts as though they're not a mere supplicant, then we lose our minds and we say, no, no, you've got to get back in your box here. The backlash is huge and it is them who are creating the division and destroying our culture. And that is ultimately what we boo. We boo our discomfort. I think that was the one of the most eloquent things I had heard on this entire saga because it just wraps it in one. I want to draw a parallel between Adam Goods and Wally Dali here yeah. for a second because this quote was of particular interest to me, not just because it was eloquent and searing and bang on, but because it came from a man who has experienced something similar to Goods in my mind. Wally Dali obviously won the Gold Logie a few years ago and he was championed as one of the most respected, celebrated journalists in Australia. Ever since then, though, public sentiment has turned and he has been admonished and hated, particularly online, particularly in digital news publications like the Daily Mail, for no particular reason. I even asked some of my friends. Some of my friends say they strongly dislike Waleed Ali, but they can never put their finger on why. They just don't like him. They find him annoying. They find him irritating. And I think it's really, really important to examine why. Why did we find Adam Goods annoying and irritating? Why did we find Waleed Ali annoying and irritating? Because they have dealt with situations with nothing but intelligence 
and humility and grace. Humility and grace. And these two men have done nothing. I can't find a single public controversy. They haven't allegedly glassed a woman in the face like Wayne Carey did. They didn't kick a policewoman in the teeth. They haven't bashed their girlfriend. They haven't cheated on their wife. They haven't treated other people in a disgraceful way. And we accept these people back in with open arms. And yet two men who happen to be from minority groups who publicly speak about their experiences and don't mince their words about their experiences, we find them irritating. Why? I think it's really important if you don't like Waleed Ali and you don't like Adam Goods and you are public about that fact and you talk to your friends about that fact and you jump on these threads and like comments about these men, why? Back it up. For me, this is a really, really important point to analyze, right? Because Joe Hildebrand, there was a clip of Joe Hildebrand and Ida Buttrose on Studio 10 around this time. And Joe Hildebrand was quoted as talking about Adam Goods saying, but he's just always talking about his problems. And then Ida Buttrose spoke about how Adam Good seemed to have this chip on his shoulder and that he needs to move on. Why he says he's moved on. Why does he have this chip on his shoulder? Why does he seem so bitter all the time? And I think that's what it is. It's when people from minorities have opinions. What Waleed Ali said, when they have an opinion about something and they actually care about something, we hate it. We hate it because we want them to shut up and be quiet because anything else they say is too confronting. Well, here's the thing as white people, we live in comfort all the time minorities do not live in comfort all the time. So as soon as minorities voice some of that discomfort and make us uncomfortable, we feel it's some big injustice. And we don't think of all the discomfort they live with every single day. We want to be comfortable no matter what. And as soon as anyone dares question, dares to question how we live and how society functions, we hate it. We can't, we can't we're repulsed by it. I want to quickly touch on morning television shows and the role they play here, because I think that morning television shows in Australia still have huge power. And I think that there was a really beautiful underlying thread with regards to the impact morning television had on this story. There were consistent clips of Alan Jones weighing in on this saga. And I think the tired format of getting a human headline like Alan Jones or Pauline Hanson to weigh in on deeply political issues needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. Like, I really think it's time we had a conversation about this, whether it be getting Pauline Hanson on Sunrise to weigh in on whether Uluru should be walked on or Alan Jones on morning television to talk about whether um, Adam Good should be booed or whether that was racist. Morning television genuinely should be ashamed of itself. Morning television should have a really long, hard look in the mirror about its purpose, about what it's serving and the role that it plays in inflaming and completely exacerbating existing racist conversations in our country. I think it exacerbates division. I think if we're talking about who's creating division and derision in our country, I think morning television, by getting people like this to speak on issues that are really important, is one of the biggest players. And here's the thing, because when you're talking about contentious topics like this, you can get both sides of the argument. Go for it. But what do people like Pauline Hanson, Andrew Bolt, and Miranda Devine have to offer? I don't know why we continually go to those three people. There are topics that those three people people can absolutely talk on. But when it comes to a culture and a race that they clearly have no education on, they clearly have no experience with, why do we continue to go to them? They, their voices are valuable. Don't get me wrong. I don't like what they have to say, but I value other opinions and I think it's important to champion other opinions when it matters. In discussions of Indigenous culture and our horrendous treatment of Indigenous people, those three voices are not needed. It's so transparent what they're trying to do and it's trying to make that clip go viral. It's trying to create contention and controversy and I think that's an incredibly powerful thing and I'm really mad about it. Like I'm really, really mad that they are so more than willing to abuse the power that they've been given. I also think we should stop and talk about Eddie Maguire in this context too because Eddie Maguire's role in this documentary was 
very interesting and very hard to swallow. In the day after the this aired on Channel 10, Eddie Maguire came out and said that it was confronting and heartbreaking for him to watch. And for me, I think it's not good enough for people to come out and understand their role in this after it's been exposed. It's just not good enough. This wasn't a one-time thing with Eddie Maguire. It wasn't that he just said one thing once and rectified it later. This went on for years and years and years. Eddie Maguire has more power than anyone, I think, apart from Gillian McLaughlin in the AFL community. There was so much commentary around the idea that this was racist, that the booing was racist, that the treatment of Adam Goods was racist. If Eddie Maguire was clever, he would have read that commentary at the time and rectified his behavior. He is sorry now because his role in that documentary was terrible. His ego and his fragility got in the way of meaningful growth and change. And it's absurd to me. It terrifies me and it devastates me that Adam Goods retired over this and Eddie Maguire is still in the most powerful jobs that exist in the media. I think the the biggest flaw out of everything that Eddie Maguire did wrong in this instance was that he gave an apology and it was an unconditional, unwavering apology to begin with. But then in the months and years afterwards, he released caveat after caveat after caveat as if to make excuses for what he did. I think a lot of his behavior, it seemed to me, and obviously I'm, I'm just the third party watching and taking in what's going on, but it looked to me like he was angry at Adam Goods for bringing this controversy into his life and that Adam Goods didn't take his joke the way that Eddie Maguire wanted him to take it. And therefore, Eddie Maguire took jabs and stabs at Adam Adam Goods and his reputation at every chance he got, including the comments about staging, including so many interviews that he did along the way where he just did not help the cause. It was like he actively wanted to, I don't know, maybe throw a few few sticks here and there. I think that's it. And again, we're projecting and, and God knows if Eddie Maguire can even analyze his behavior from that time too. But, um, and I don't know if it's too simplistic of me to say Eddie Maguire could have turned this around, but I think if Gillian McLaughlin had to come out straight away and said, this is fucking racist, not that he would have said this is fucking racist, but <laughs> Gillian, that's very crass this of you. is racist. And Eddie Maguire came out and said, this is racist and you're all disgusting. I think that this could have stopped a long time earlier because those two men have a lot of power. Absolutely. I think I want to put a positive spin on this to end, but first I also want to discuss this in that 1995, Michael Long, another indigenous AFL star mm. was vocal on the field about a racial slur that came his way from a Collingwood player, I believe it was. And at the time in 1995, Michael Long was accused of victimizing white kids because he dared to bring this up on a main stage and in the mainstream. And on Talkback Radio, he was slammed and told that he shouldn't be drawing attention to this and he should just get over it. Slurs are just a fact of footy. When Waleed Ali spoke about Adam Goods, he said, we've seen this before. And he gave this example. And it makes me think if that was 1995 and we were no better by 2015, when is this going to end? Like, what does the future of Australian racism look like? What does the future of Australian inclusion look like, of multiculturalism look like? Because if 20 years we did something even worse, Mm. we're not moving forward. This isn't something that's being pushed and it desperately needs to be because our treatment of Indigenous Australians is abhorrent. It's appalling. Marley Silva wrote for SBS this week, it's one of the hardest films I've ever watched in my life. Not just because of how angry or heartbroken it makes you feel to watch what Adam went through, not just because we've seen those same attitudes of that time re-emerged with the recent reaction around Cody Walker and the national anthem, not just because I'm the daughter of an Aboriginal ex-sportsman, but because of how deeply it reflects the Australia I grew up in. This is not 
a one-time thing. This is not just one example of one footballer treated really badly. This is systematic and it's ingrained. And I think that this documentary needs to be played in every school, in every single state for every child to see that's what racism looks like. It doesn't look like random shit being thrown at the street, even though that's it too, Mm. but it is far more subtle and layered than that. And we need to understand what it looks like so that none of us mince our words when we see it again and we know when we can call it out. And be introspective. If you you come into something like this and come into a racial discussion with a feeling of annoyance already, really examine and re-examine that feeling. Why do you feel annoyed? Why do you feel irritated? Because you might be the problem. Thank you, next bitch. Last week, former Big Brother star come influencer Sky Wheatley told her 200,000 YouTube subscribers that some victims of domestic abuse bring it upon themselves. While her comments were almost universally condemned and the 25-year-old was forced to release not one but two apologies, it did spark another conversation altogether in our Facebook group. What is the responsibility of brands who choose to endorse people like Wheatley who use their own platform to say uneducated things? Mish, let's go back to the start for now with the comments that she actually made and then get to brand's responsibility. Yeah, so for those who missed it, the quotes were that Sky, quote, doesn't feel sorry, quote, for the types of girls who stay in abusive relationships. She came out after the backlash and said, wait, I was only talking about the women who can leave and choose not to, which again, I think is an uneducated opinion. That's an oxymoron. Who decides whether someone is safe to leave an abusive relationship? We know through research and studies that a victim faces the greatest risk to their safety when trying to leave an abusive relationship. So what Sky in her head deems an opportunity to leave might actually be the most dangerous and disastrous decision of that woman's life. Absolutely. So she said, if a girl is with a guy that beats her and she's in a position that she can leave but doesn't and she stays in the relationship, I don't feel sorry for these types of girls because they're bringing it upon themselves. I'm not going to feel sorry for someone who is literally creating their own reality. People who try to be victims and are just like, poor me, poor me, make something of your life. I want to speak about Sky for a second because uh, a brand found to come into our Facebook group and ask, legitimately ask, what is my role here? Mm. Am I going to be judged for working with her in the future? Should I delete posts that I did with her in the past? Like where's the line here of what brand's responsibility is? I think when it comes to brands working with Sky Wheatley, they of course have every right to do that. This is capitalism after all. Like you're, you can make money however you want to make money. But in the case of Sky Wheatley, this isn't the first time that she's said something that has been deeply offensive and deeply uneducated to her hundreds of thousands of followers. She has used the N-word in the past. She has said that she wishes she was a naturally tanned Aboriginal so that she didn't have to fake tan anymore. She said, was that racist? I'm not a racist person. Like, I actually dated an Aboriginal guy and I wish that I had Aboriginal in my blood or just some type of anything that makes you brown. So Sky hasn't dealt with this in the best way in the past. She hasn't come out and given good apologies. She clearly hasn't educated herself in the way that her followers would expect. And I think that's what makes people upset. It is the fact that she came on a platform and told domestic violence victims that basically it's their fault and that they're creating their own reality. It's also that when she apologized, she didn't really apologize at all. Instead of taking responsibility and saying, I'm going to learn, her initial response in the form of an Instagram story was to say that everyone else had interpreted it the wrong way and that she's all 
always misinterpreted and that's where the problem is because we all fuck up but when you fuck up it's your responsibility to do better and learn and grow yeah I agree with that to a point for me it's too many times too many times like for me now it's too little too late like it's too many things now that have been deeply offensive deeply uneducated how many times do we have to say on this podcast that having a platform is not a right it is a responsibility if you want to make money off those 200,000 subscribers that you've got on YouTube and those 600,000 followers you have on Instagram and you say something that they don't like, they are allowed to come after you. She said, I sincerely apologize if I've hurt anyone's feelings. People tend to misunderstand and take things that I say the wrong way. I'm not blaming victims. Can we spread love, not hate? A couple of issues I have with that apology. Firstly, you're not just hurting people's feelings. You are adding to an incredibly uh, damaging stigma. A, a completely damaging stigma, a conversation that hasn't been productive in a very long time. I think it's taken us years and years and years to get to a point where people are starting to understand that women can't just leave domestically abusive relationships. Secondly, that influence aligns, spread love, not hate really, really frustrates me because it comes back to this idea that we have touched on before that anytime you want to call someone out for something or hold them to account for something, you are therefore a hater and you're Mm. spreading hate, not love. The way I see it is that an influencer is like anyone who has a job, right? And in any job that you have, you have KPIs and you have things that are acceptable (laughs) and things that aren't acceptable. And in my mind, an influencer coming out and spreading really harmful misinformation is them not hitting their KPI. They're not doing well at their job that day. She doesn't have a right to this audience. It's a privilege, as you just said. And if she's not going to do better at her job, people are going to let her know about that. And they're allowed to get in contact with the brands too. I think there were huge conversations that went around after Sky made these comments where people started contacting the brands that she had recently worked with saying, are you aware of these comments? Do you still want to stand by her? Brands can use her. Absolutely. Like we say, they can make money however they like. They're no public service, but in the same vein, I'm allowed to see that brand alignment and I'm allowed to criticize it and say, I'm probably not going to buy your product or open my wallet because I don't want to endorse your product if you're endorsing her comments. Kind of reminds me of that headline that went on Brandon Jack's story for the Sydney Morning Herald in the wake of Scott Cummings being fired from his job. And the headline was, Cummings is free to offend, 3AW is free to sack him and we're free to cheer. It's like, yes, Sky Wheatley can say what she wants. We are also allowed to criticize that. Brands are therefore still allowed to work with her but we're also allowed to criticize that as well yeah all of those things can happen i think go for it like if you want to work with her as a brand absolutely 100 percent. if that's what you want to do but i can't guarantee that i'll be a customer of your brand and the fact of the matter is is that gen z and millennials are increasingly educated and enlightened when it comes to they consumer care. culture they care deeply they care deeply about the influencer economy and now that they realize and they understand how this money works and how this advertising works they care deeply about the people they're supporting and so if you as a brand want to make a decision to support sky wheatley you probably won't have many domestic violence victims which is too many women in Australia supporting you back. It's a business decision at the end of the day. You're welcome to make it, but consumers are also welcome to close their wallets to you. I don't think brands can underestimate their power in this too. Like they are elevating someone by choosing to work with them because they're endorsing the platform they stand on, if not inflating it too. Okay. For one, I think it's ensuring an influencer is paid, therefore ensuring she has a job and a platform in the future. Secondly, I think it's about the optics of this. If a brand like 
I'm not going to name one right now, but like Mugs, a, a brand called Mugs, literally because there's a mug in front of me, want to endorse Sky Waitley. The optics of that is that other brands see how Mugs are working with Sky Waitley, how they could potentially work with Sky Waitley too. And it's sort of like a seed planter. That in turn also grows her influence too. It's multi-layered and a brand has a lot of power when they work with an influencer, I would argue. Totally. And I absolutely understand why some of these brand founders would feel upset or confronted when their inbox is blowing up with messages from angry customers or angry followers. But at the end of the day, I don't think it's a reflection of what you've done in the past. You can't help that you did work with her six months ago or three months ago or one week ago. What people are asking for is what's going to happen in the future. What does this say about your values? Do you agree? And are you going to stand by them? That's what people care about. And at the end of the day, I like I hope that Sky Wheatley grows and learns from this. I'm absolutely not for cancel culture. I think she has a lot of work to do when it comes to actually informing herself before she shares an opinion that is potentially dangerous. And if she doesn't have the energy or time to inform herself, then maybe she shouldn't have a public opinion about things that she doesn't have the time to inform herself about. Yeah. I also don't want us to act like Sky Wheatley is the only victim here. The victims here, in my mind, are the women who suffered in really toxic and dangerous relationships and then opened up a YouTube video to be told that they were the problem and they brought it on themselves. And to be completely victim-blamed in the process. Exactly. Hey, I think that's all we've had time for today. Thank you so much, guys. We absolutely adore you, as you all know. If you want to keep in touch with us before the next episode, follow us on Instagram. We're at Shameless Podcast. Zara's at Zara McDonald. I'm at Michelle Andrews One. We're also on Facebook, where we are Shameless Podcast Community. Yeah, we are everywhere. In the meantime, we we will be back in your ears on Thursday for an in-conversation. And I think that's all we have to tell you. Do we have anything else to say? No. Oh, I do want to say that we will eventually, like pretty soon, hopefully be releasing dates for our Sydney and Brisbane live yeah, shows. Yeah, that's in the works, we promise. We know we've been promising that for a very long time, but we have not forgotten. It is coming up. Just bear with us, like Ooh. we always keep saying. Briz Vegas. Briz Vegas <laughs> and Sid Vegas. Oh, wow. I'm going to press Get stop recording now. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.